Many people don't realize you put in 50,000, you're gonna get $500 a month for the next 10 years. You need a lot of those to really make a substantial difference in your life, right? And sure there's appreciation and there's cash outs and different things, but it's a game of scale. And if you look at the very biggest institutions, the banking level on the mortgage side, this is their model is they're doing single family residential mortgages. If you look on the real estate side with the largest funds, you know, they're buying in bulk as well. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is Jerry Feta. Today, you're going to learn all about a unique passive seller financing real estate investing model. In this case, you would be the seller, and we're going to dig into how this particular model works, how Jerry invests in real estate passively so that others are doing the work, he's becoming the bank, and he's still getting a passive return. Really interesting model that not a lot of folks are out there doing today. And you're going to get all the ins and outs of this unique seller financing investing model. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday now. Let's get with Jerry. Jerry, thank you for joining us today. For our listeners out there, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, and how you do real estate? Yeah, totally. And thanks for having me on today, Taylor. You know, I own a company called Wealth Dynamics. And what we do, and kind of my vision with the company, and this is kind of where the real estate plays into it, I've got a very basic philosophy that when more good people have control of the capital on planet Earth, better things happen. Right. And I have a passion, very super simple and logical. Right. And, and when it's backwards, it's like the bad guy off the Simpson, that old dude that's always trying to take over the world. Mr. Burns. Yeah. Mr. Burns. Yeah. So we try and do the anti Mr. Burns model, but that's really where the investing comes in with real estate. I think that is uh, a great way to align your capital with your purpose and do you know something with your money where you do get growth, you, you do get returns, but you also make a positive impact. I actually started as a traditional financial advisor at the age of 18. I had my securities licenses. I did stocks, bonds, mutual funds, you know, all of the things that I would call retail financial services. And I would often meet with certain clients that just had no interest in it, right? And it wasn't like they were broke. It wasn't like they were struggling. A lot of times they had means that I could never figure out you know, this is the right answer. Why aren't these people wanting to invest this way? And so as I started learning, I realized a lot of them were investing in real estate. And I kind of just fell in love with the, I like tangible, right? So when I really started to dig below the retail securities industry with mutual funds and, you know, this, I got in after 2008 happened. So the big short came out. I read The Creature from Jekyll Island and all these things, right? And I started, you know, being more and more interested in a hard asset that really I could see the tangible value and I had a high degree of control over. So I've spent the last, what is this now, 12, 13 years of my life studying the top 1% and studying historically, what did they actually do with their money and, and how do we replicate similar models with our own finances today? And, and real estate is one of those things. Absolutely. So we're all about real estate investing here. And today I want to dig into your seller financed real estate model. So I think when people hear that you can do deals with seller financing, a whole lot of questions come up. How do you structure that? How do you get legal documents in place? How do you even convince a seller and make a compelling case for them to sell or finance their property to you? So let's break into that and talk about your specific 
seller finance real estate model, and then we can get into some questions. Yeah, totally. So I'm a passive investor, meaning when you get into the real estate space, right, there's a lot of ways to do it. You can do subject to, you can, I mean, there's so many things you can do actively to get deals. I run a business, I'm a CEO, I've got staff, clients all over the world. And for me, it's important to invest in real estate because I believe in that asset plat class. But I have a chief rule I live by, which is never trade time for the same dollar twice, right? Never trade, trade time for the same dollar twice. So if I earned it once actively, I don't want to invest it in something that I then have to go earn it again passively. So that really is what led me into seller finance, right? I started looking at, you know, the rental avenue and I really just thought that was not something I wanted to do. I wasn't interested in being a landlord. I manage employees already. So I wasn't interested in managing a property manager. You know, I looked into many things. And so for me, I really like seller finance. And the structure on this, you know, when I look at it, it's very similar to the way banks make money, right? Banks are often, they're not buying rental properties as equity owners. They're interested in lending money to somebody who would then go buy a property, right? Now, the way that we do our seller finance is it starts with actually understanding the supply and demand. So one of your questions, Taylor, was how would you convince the seller to do this, right? So over half the population doesn't qualify for a house based on either income or credit. So there's this huge market of people that can't actually have the American dream. And, and so they're wanting to buy a house, can't instead they're renting. I think the average rent in the nation is somewhere between eleven, twelve hundred dollars a month. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure you've you've got statistics on that with with what you do. Is that even the range you see? Yeah. Our properties typically rent for a bit more than that, but I can see how once you factor in tertiary markets on average, you do wind up somewhere in that range. So that does sound about right. Yeah. So eleven, twelve hundred a month. Again, you know, more more than half the population is renting and can't get into a home because of credit limitations or income. So that's kind of the demand. The supply is kind of two different angles. Is you have bank foreclosures, and those have peaked. They, so prior to COVID, right, two thousand eight happened. Foreclosures all time high. They started to taper off. And interestingly enough, if you look at the statistics, you'll see that in 2019, they started climbing again. And this was pre-pandemic. So think about a time the stock market's ripping, real estate's very high in value, interest rates are super low, yet somehow foreclosures started to creep up, right? Now we had this period during the pandemic where there's, you know, foreclosure bans, moratoriums on rents and all this stuff. So banks are holding on to this inventory that they can't do anything with, really. They're not getting paid. And so what we've seen is with banks, they're often, you know, wholesale auctioning off properties. And so we will look at wholesale from banks bought on auction. So you're looking at, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 single family homes. And so you're kind of already at the bottom of the market, which is very good for recession proofing yourself. A $40,000 home is not going to go that much lower if the economy tanks, right? It's kind of at the bottom. Granted, too, that these are not the nicest homes. So the wear and tear has already happened. If somebody moved out on foreclosure, it's not because they did a great job being a homeowner. So we typically will buy them as is in bulk. We do what's called prehabbing, right? So we'll get them, you know, fixed up so where they have, you know, minimal essential repairs and, and cleanup done so that they can pass inspection and be sold again. And then what our model is, we'll actually then find a family that will move into the house. So I have a company that's turnkey that does all of this for me. They'll find a family that will move into the house, right? So the key with seller finance is that family probably right now is renting and they're probably paying, you know, 1100 1200 
And if you go seller finance, you're going to typically do a note value that's higher than your purchase price. I might buy it for say 50 and then I might do a final sale price with them for 65 or 70, right? My interest rate is going to be based on that 65 or 70, right? So at the end of the, the day, their monthly mortgage payment probably is going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of five to $700 a month. And then you factor in, you know, some taxes, some insurance, but it's substantially cheaper than their rents. And then the after repair value, because we didn't go, you know, full rehab on the house, they're going to have a lot of opportunity for sweat equity. We have these families that they're saving money. They're loving that because their housing cost has gone down. They actually, we have it in our vetting process with them that they agree to fix the house up while they live there. Right. And so they're going to see the equity gain. And then we typically will pinpoint the pricing so that it's lower than the after repair value. And what that does is it gives them instant equity on their purchase. So they're incentivized to keep the mortgage payment in a positive fashion because they don't want to walk away from ten dollars or $15,000 of equity. Plus, they've got a good thing going with their lower payment, right? They're continuing to fix the house up. In a best case scenario, they're paying me every single month. And the great thing is that home is something that I own through a, a series of trusts and entities. So if they were to default and I foreclose and evict them, I can take the property back. So I've got, you know, some downside protection. If they've been living in it and fixing it up, it's probably worth more when I take it back, right? And so then it's just the, the cycle of putting it back on the market again and finding another family. My ideal thing is that they stay in it, they keep paying for it. And just like any homeowner, they might cash out or refinance in, in seven or 10 years. So... That's kind of the 30,000 square foot view of things. And I love that model because it allows me to be in real estate without being the landlord. And it still allows me to have a lot of control over the property without necessarily having the responsibility for the toilet broke or they didn't pay their rent or whatever the thing is that came up. So how do you handle servicing of the note, which is to say actual collection of the mortgage payment on the note? How do you handle that? Yes. So my company that I do this with, again, it's turnkey and I pay them a fee, it's a, a fee every month to manage escrow. So they make sure that the, the mortgage payment comes in, principal and interest. They make sure the taxes and insurance get covered. And then we also have a liability policy on the house. So if there's you know destruction, damage, et cetera, that's part of the family's mortgage payment. And so this company that I work with handles that part as well. So that's kind of the financial escrow management. I pay them a second fee for family management. You know, if there's questions, inquiries, problems, it all goes to them. They field it. And I'm the last set of highs if we need to evict someone or whatever comes up, I'm the final sign off on those things. But it allows me to essentially, you know, have the benefit of it and outsource a lot of the bandwidth so that I can have, you know, scale in my portfolio. Because that's the thing a lot of people don't understand about real estate, Taylor, is we hear, you know, the sexiness of being a real estate investor. You don't realize when, I mean, you probably do. Many people don't realize you put in 50,000, you're going to get $500 a month for the next 10 years. You need a lot of those to really make a substantial difference in your life, right? And sure, there's appreciation and there's cash outs and different things, but it's a game of scale. And if you look at the very biggest institutions, the banking level on the mortgage side, this is their model is they're doing single family residential mortgages. If you look on the real estate side with the largest funds, you know, they're buying in bulk as well. This leverage to be able to scale your portfolio and really get to a critical mass of income, gain, appreciation. You know, for me, I love that aspect of it. So on the investor side of things, it does sound though that this may be a somewhat capital intensive type of investment. Could you walk us through 
the actual you know investment side of things from the the passive investor side how much are you investing in the deal you're probably not able to bring any financing to the table right because you're essentially acting as the bank right so what is that process and and the capital yeah, investment look like? for me i like to double dip i typically will actually borrow from a life insurance policy first and then i'll put that capital into my deal now you do need to bring full cash to the table and on this, it is, you know, like I wouldn't recommend doing less than three properties to start with, right? It, it's a bit different than renting. And, and the reason is on a rental, you know, it's kind of like dating. It's a short relationship. Right? They're not committing to something. On this, we're saying, hey, let's do a 20-year mortgage. Let's get married, right? And so that runway of finding the right family, not just from a financial standpoint, but you want good people who are going to treat that property well and actually value the pride of being a homeowner. And they're going to understand what's being done for them. And there's that respect and relationship where they're going to want to keep paying and want to keep the house in good condition. So it might take three or six months to get the house fully cash flowing and up and running just because we're vetting and really finding the right family. So each house, like maybe 50, 60,000 is, is when I go all in to purchase one. If I'm doing three, you know, we're looking at maybe 150 or 180 as a starting threshold. And so it is going to be more than the single family has an initial starting point, right? Single family, I might put 30, 40,000 down, finance the balance, 150 or 200,000, and, and it's a lower barrier to entry because of that. And, and to each their own, if I'm going single family rental, I still want it to be as passive as possible, right? I don't want to do an FHA loan and live in a unit or any of that stuff. I want it to be, you know, it's fully handled, it's fully taken care of, and, and I can do the things that I like doing which doesn't involve managing a property. So it will take more money to get in. It will be more passive on the back ends. Because I double dip with the life insurance, I earn some arbitrage just on that component. And then I've got the instant equity gain on my mortgage value. If I buy it for 50 and sell it to them for 70, and I charge 12% on 70 for the next 20 years, right? My, my net IRR on that is, is pretty substantial from a standpoint of yield and cash flow. Okay, so when you... When I hear fifty, sixty thousand dollars for a house, you know that's pretty cheap. There's not a lot of places you can get a house like that, and mm-hmm. there is a concern in my mind about what's the actual quality and condition of the house. The previous person who owned the house before the bank foreclosed on them probably wasn't taking care of it. The bank's going to do some minor repairs, like you said, but you know, still fifty, sixty thousand sounds pretty hairy. What does the typical condition really look like in a nuts and bolts sense when you acquire the property and how do you like vet that out before you just kind of blindly buy something yeah so the company that that i'm using they underwrite about ten thousand homes on a weekly basis go through big foreclosures they recently actually started going to mass mass rental owners like in the rental market people who have you know they want to exit 20 30 40 single family homes so they'll do a package deal like this, where if a company comes in and says, I want all of your inventory, right? Now, there is an inspection process to make sure that the home is going to pass inspection on a sale. That's the key, right? Now, when you're going through this, and this was a mindset difference for me, it's a mortgage. I'm not going to live there, and it's not my house, it's their house. So these are, you know, I would call them turds. Like, you look at it, it's not nice, it needs lots of work, Right. And that's the bargain is you're giving this family, hey, you can make this your dream house and you're going to get 100% of the upside for all the work you do, right? And there's a lot of work to be done. If you fix the drywall, if you paint, if you replace carpets, your equity value stands to go up, up, 
and you're getting it at a price point that you really aren't going to see in the market very often. You know, even at the end price of 70,000, it's tough to find anything like that that's not a mobile home, right? And these are our true single family residences. They're not track homes, mobile homes, anything like that, right? So you kind of have to go into it realizing you are just the bank. If a family is willing to move in and, you know, do the work and fix the house up, great. Now your risk on that note does go down over time because as that family is living there, they are cleaning it, they are fixing it. And then we actually do contests every year. So we say, hey, every year, you know, send in pictures and videos of the upkeep you've done to your house and we'll give you your December mortgage payment for free if you're one of the top winners. So we've created some incentive for them to really fix that house up because if I get it back, I want it back better than when I gave it to them. Wow, that's great. So what parts of the country do you find this model working in, at least for you? Yes, so it's 32 states. I think it's 330 some odd counties that we have portfolio properties in. The top three states, I mean, you're looking at Indiana, Ohio, Illinois, right? So these are your Midwestern homes. They're in areas where rightfully the real estate prices are lower, right? You look at Peoria, Illinois, nobody's excited to go move there, but people do live there and they do need homes and there are low prices there. Do you typically look to hold the note to maturity or will you ever look to sell it off on the secondary market to pull your capital back out? Like oftentimes there's a secondary note market. So would you look to sell a note on that market? You definitely could. I'm kind of of the mindset where I honestly don't see most of these families paying off a 20-year mortgage, right? And I love helping people. So like we had a success come in with a, a family that actually sold their house. They bought it for 70, right, from the investor. They paid the investor, you know, 12% on that note for, gosh, three or four years. And at the end of three or four years, the family's, the home was worth 180. So the family sold their life is completely changed, right? Like they went from bad credit score, renter, couldn't get a house to we've got $110,000 of equity in our pocket and, and now we actually can make it and, and build some wealth for our family. I love that. That's my favorite part about the investing because it really does impact them in a positive way. The investor is not completing because he made 12% for three or four years. Just like any mortgage on the sale, he gets cashed out. He gets his remaining principal back. He deploys it and does another one. That's typically like what we'll see. You can cash out early, you can go secondary, but I, I think they're, they're either going to default, refinance, or sell within seven to 10 years, and, and that'll handle itself as far as liquidity is concerned. Interesting. Okay. So which of those do you find is the most common? I would imagine refis are maybe kind of low these days, given where interest rates are, but the rates they're paying on the note are fairly high. Defaults are... Also relative lows now. I mean, what's kind of the most common endpoint of the deal? Yeah, we typically see sale. I mean, the default, I think it's an average historically on this portfolio company of about 7%. Because it's not a true bank, right? Like a bank doesn't care about anybody. They're not interested in the welfare of the person living in the house. We are. And so when someone defaults, the first thing we do is we check on them. Is what's going on? Is there a sickness? Did you lose a job? Tell us what's going on. We're not here to kick you out. We want to find out, you know, can we work on getting you back on track, right? A lot of families appreciate that. Plus they realize they've got a good thing going. They've got the equity. So a lot of times within 90 days, they'll get caught up. Only about 7% of the time do we actually need to evict and foreclose. The refi, you make a valid point. I mean, if they're at 12%, it's not that bad. 
right? So they might refinance to eight and it's based on credit. And we do actually help them report the mortgage payments so that they can self-report and build their scores up and show positive history. Because again, this is really, it's aligning, you know, money with purpose. So if you've got a purpose to help someone, you're not going to be upset when they they say, hey, because of what you did for me, I, I can refinance and get a great deal on this mortgage and own this home now, right? I'm going to say, great, I'm going to take my liquidity, deploy it and do another one. Those are kind of the scenarios, but more often than not, it's going to be a sale, especially if there's 50 or 60 or 100,000 in equity that they've got all of a sudden, that can go a long way for a family that's in need. Nice, nice. I like that. I like aligning money with purpose. Very interesting model right now. We're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Jerry, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? Let's do it. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? My number one book recommendation, I would say Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. One of my favorite books, and it talks about how to utilize life insurance as a banking system. So when I learned about that and I combined it with real estate, for me, that's been a very powerful concept. Nice. Question number two, who or what inspires you? You know, I would say really two things. I really do like helping. And so just before our podcast, I was on a call with a client. I'm the CEO. I don't need to be at the Friday night. I really enjoy helping people. And so when I see the positive impact made with somebody that I'm helping, working with, et cetera, even if it's one of my staff members, that really gets me excited and motivated. The other thing that inspires me is, I guess, kind of seeing what I'm capable of. I'm one of those people where I, I always want to do better than I did before. And I always want to push the limit and see what I can actually accomplish. Different levels of that and unlocking that. And granted, it worked, you know, pushing yourself to that kind of level. But for me, that's very inspiring. That's probably the, the main thing that gets me out of bed and going every day. Awesome. Question number three, think about Jerry at 80 years old. What advice would he give to Jerry of today? This is a good question. Jerry at 80 years old would probably tell me, keep going to the gym. And I, and I say that because I, so I used to be a bodybuilder, right? And typically 80 people are worn down. Have you seen Jack LaLanne? Are you familiar with who that is? I am, yeah. I've so he it. was like 100, right? Like pulling boats but between the ocean and, you know, super fit and in shape. I mean, when you're 80, one of the things that I think you have is you've got life experience. If you kept your mindset sharp, you've got a lot of intelligence and you've got a lot of wit. Typically, what's going to slow someone down is the physical, right? They're not able, the body's not able to keep up with the mind and the spirit anymore. So I think if I can keep my body up with my mind and my spirit, I can still act like I'm in my 30s and 40s, even if I'm 80. Love that. It's very important. I think Jacqueline died just a few years ago, right? Yeah, he did. Yeah. Memory serves. Yeah. Well, rest in peace. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Jerry. If folks want to reach out and get in touch, where can they find you? So if you go to jerryfetta.com, you can grab a free copy of my book, How to Create Wealth. You can also connect with me on social media. We're on Instagram. It's probably the one I'm most active on. You can go on TikTok as well or your YouTube even. Great. Well, thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one.